Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 17, the book of Hosea, chapter 10. Douglas Stewart aptly characterizes the opening verses of Hosea chapter 10 as rejection of cult and of kingship. Cult meaning Ephraim Israel's religious establishment and their practices. Yehovah is firmly distancing himself from Israel's monarchy as much as from their worship. But even more, Yehovah is aggressively destroying the monarchy and the entire religious system that Israel insisted was for the sake of worshiping Him, God of Israel. Now, as I studied this chapter, it occurred to me that it has a direct relationship with the book of Revelation, and especially to chapter 17, where we read about the whore of Babylon. Now, it is generally the Christian mindset to picture only pagans bent on wickedness, for which this derogatory term is used. Well, I think otherwise. We've observed throughout Hosea that God uses the terms harlot, prostitute, and whore to describe those who pervert their otherwise proper worship of Him. He is not speaking to or of pagans. Therefore, because of Hosea, it is common among Christian New Testament commentators to say that the whore of Babylon must be Israel. Now, while I think they're kind of on the right track, in that even though actual anti-God pagans are included in the mix, by the time we get to the words of the book of Revelation, this term must also include those who claim allegiance to the God of Israel, but who have corrupted the true Orthodox Biblical faith. I want to be clear, while in Hosea the reference to whoredom is indeed aimed squarely at Ephraim Israel, its scope becomes expanded in the book of Revelation to include all who create or practice some sort of hybridized, man-made religion that pleases them, and then attempts to attach it to the God of the Bible as proper worship. This is the essence of idolatry. Now there is no doubt that the term whore that is included in a small group of terms revolving around illicit sexual practices, including adultery, there's no doubt that it's a metaphor for idolatry when such unfaithfulness to a marriage partner or to one's Lord and Master, that's when we enter the spiritual realm. It becomes idolatry. My point's this. Institutional Christianity as we know it, 
a faith that is largely based on doctrines that originated, uh, that originated from the Roman Church, do not confuse that with the Catholic Church, as decided upon by Gentiles in the fourth century, must seek God and do a, a serious examination of itself. Our faith in Christ as Savior and Lord need not be part of this examination, because that might be the one and only part of it that remains pure and true. However, it is undeniable that Christianity as a Gentiles-only religion has embraced many pagan and Roman holidays and practices, often renaming and repurposing them, assuming Yehovah is going to be pleased with such an effort. Man-made doctrines dominate. Bible study has devolved into ways to find divine approval to validate our questionable social trends. And those biblical commands that do not suit us are no longer deemed relevant for a believer. Or they're taught as applying only to another people, usually to the Jews. Roman Christianity did not set out to be wicked. There was a measure of sincerity to follow God, however sincerely wrong the direction might have been. But God does not accept sincere, even intense, worship if it's not the worship of Him as He has prescribed it. God does not accept man-made doctrines that alter characteristics and attributes of who He actually is, or what He actually commands. Here in Hosea, the book of Hosea, it is not that God merely gets upset with Israel, and so He turns His back on their polluted religious practices, and, and, and even the people who practice them. Rather. After much unheeded warning, he eventually loses his patience, and he goes on a destructive rampage to stamp out what he sees as offensive and abominable to him. Yet no matter what catastrophes happened to them, Israel still didn't get it. They looked around at all that they were doing and their rituals and their sacrifices, all the effort, all the cost they put into them, and they deemed it all good. Good. But good on what basis? Did they go back to the Holy Scriptures to see if what they were believing and doing was proper? No. There's not the slightest hint that they did that. And God condemns them for not doing so. Why wouldn't they go to the Scriptures? Why wouldn't they go to the Torah that they were in possession of to see if what they believed and what they did was in line with God's command to them? I feel confident to say 
that because they were just as human as the rest of us, they didn't know, they, they just didn't want to know the things they didn't want to know. They were comfortable. They were very satisfied in their beliefs and their traditions. They didn't want to hold their standards up against God's written standards, probably because of what they inherently knew they'd discover. So all sorts of rationalizations were devised. And any who protested too loudly, such as God's prophets, well, they were marginalized and they were deemed the heretics. And heretics they were. Not to the biblical faith, but rather to this perverted man-made system of religion of Ephraim Israel. Fellow believers, I saw the enemy, and he's us. Only when we are ready to be taken to the woodshed by God, only when we're ready to accept His holy word as our one and only truth and standard, a standard that Jesus said He didn't come to abolish, and that it would not change in the slightest way till the heavens and the earth passed away, and <laughs> we are ready in our spirits to admit our error and our folly and make changes, only then will there be any correction in our journey and to God's displeasure of us. If we do not undertake this effort, if we do not humble ourselves before the Lord, and if we refuse to obey and to accept His correction, then at Judgment Day, you, me, all of us, we may well be counted in the group that God collectively calls the Whore of Babylon. Okay, let's read Hosea chapter 10. Open your Bibles to Hosea chapter 10. Follow along with me, please. Hosea chapter 10. Starting at verse 1. Israel was a luxuriant vine, freely putting forth fruit. As his fruit increased, he increased his altars. As his land got better, he improved his standing stones. Their hearts divided. Now they will bear, bear their guilt. He will break down their altars and destroy their standing stones. For now they will say, we have no king, because we didn't fear out an eye. And what could a king do for us anyway? They mouth words, swearing falsely, making treaties. Thus judgment spreads like poisonous weeds in the furrows of a field. The inhabitants of Shomron, Samaria, are frightened of the calf gods at Beethoven. Its people mourn over it, its priests tremble over it, over its glory, which has left it. It will be carried to Asher as a present for a warring king. Ephraim will be put to shame, and Israel be ashamed of his own advice. Shomron's king will perish like foam on the surface of the water. Destruction will come to the high places of Aben, that is, to the sin of Israel. Thorns and thistles will grow over their altars, and they will say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. Since the days of Gibeah you have sinned, Israel. There they took their stand, for these arrogant people at Gibeah 
War was insufficient punishment. When I wish to, I will discipline them, and the peoples will be gathered against them to discipline them for their two crimes. Ephraim is a well-taught cow. It loves to tread the grain, and I have spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim in harness. Judah will have to plow. Jacob will harrow his own land. If you sow righteousness for yourselves, you will reap according to grace. Break up unused ground for yourselves, because it's time to seek Adonai till he comes and rains down righteousness upon you. You have plowed wickedness, reaped iniquity, eaten the fruit of lies, because you trusted in your own way. In your large number of warriors, turmoil will erupt among your peoples. All your fortresses will be destroyed. Just as Shalman destroyed Bet Arbel in the day of battle, when mothers were dashed to pieces right along with their children. Thus will be done to you, Bethel, because of your great wickedness. At dawn, the king of Israel will be completely cut off. Now, before we delve into this chapter, something needs to be said. This is a very challenging series of verses to interpret. If you hold up several good Bible versions together and compare Hosea chapter 10 among them, among them you're going to get significant variation. Now, even though the ancient Hosea manuscripts for this chapter are in reasonably good shape, the style of writing, the use of metaphors, the poetic license that is taken, and so much more, makes meaning harder to extract. Clearly, this chapter is written very artfully, but it was done in the context of the world as it was in the 8th century BC. Whoever Hosea was employing as a scribe was highly skilled in his wordsmithing. At the same time, it seems that there are some subtle references to events that were happening at the time this chapter was written, and that precisely what those things were are both critical to fullest understanding of the point that the author is making, and unfortunately, some of this is also lost to history. This means our points of reference can be obscure if not covered up altogether. And just to make matters more complicated, there are several arcane Hebrew words used that can not only have double meanings, but the same words can even have opposite meanings. So our work's cut out for us. The very first verse is an example of this. In verse 1, take a look at it. Verse 1, Israel is metaphorically compared to a spreading or abundant vine. Or, on the other hand, it could be a barren or a ravaged vine. And since the fruit of the vine is compared to the vine itself, then depending on how we characterize the vine, then the fruit is either abundant or it's lacking. The issue is less what the literal words mean when taken individually, and more about what the overall thought is that's being expressed. 
Either God begins with the premise that He has given to Israel, who's the vine, a good beginning and a solid foundation, and they indeed had a healthy growing community, and thus what they produced, their fruit, good deeds, proper worship, had been good and healthy, or the thought is that at one time this had been so, but no longer. Rashi, for instance, translates the first words of, the, of this verse as, a luxuriant vine is Israel. So to help us decide the original intent of this verse, we have to read further in order to establish the contextual thought. The verse continues with, the more the fruit, the more altars he made, the finer his land, the finer the sacred stones he made. Or it can be translated, when the fruit was plentiful, he made many altars. When his land was fertile, they multiplied cultic pillars. So now the issue is, was the fruit being described to open the verse, good fruit, or was it bad fruit? Was it good fruit that allowed Israel to have the motivation and the means to build more pagan altars? Or was it that bad fruit led to a perversion of the mind? And so Israel foolishly built more pagan altars. I think you're beginning to get a taste of what we're in for in Hosea chapter 10. What can we say then about verse 1 on a thought-for-thought -thought approach? It's this. Israel used all that God had graciously given them not to His glory, but instead they glorified Baal through their worshiping and their sacrificing. They multiplied the number of pagan altars they built in proportion to the abundance they had been given. Now this proved to have been historically true, as archaeologists have found pagan altars on hilltops all over the hill country of what was formerly the land of the Northern Kingdom. This is a classic case of God's people misusing God's gifts to them, to us. This is also setting up the dynamic of what then does the farmer, God, do with a vine, Israel, that does not produce good fruit for him? The vine is fit only to be cut down and burned up. Now, because the Israelites saw Jehovah primarily as their national god, and the Baal gods as those who controlled certain important functions in nature, such as fertility, maybe the weather, then Israel assumed that the good crops they were growing and harvesting did not come from Jehovah, but rather from Baal. Thus they thanked and sacrificed to Baal, not to Jehovah, who was their true provider. And they built even more altars to Baal as a kind of quid pro quo, believing that they had invented the perpetual motion machine. More altars brings more fertility. With more fertility, they could afford more altars. 
And now by adding more altars, they get even more fertility, and so on, and so on, and so on. That was the mindset. But in adding more altars, the Israelites showed that they had been deceived because of their perverted thinking and their religious beliefs. They were going, there was going to be this uh, high price to pay for such wrongdoing against Jehovah. The curse of the covenant would be imposed upon them. Deuteronomy 29, verses 17 through 20. So let there not be among you a man, woman, family, or tribe whose heart turns away today from Adonai, our God, to go and serve the gods of those nations. Let there not be among you a root bearing such bitter poison and wormwood. If there is such a person, when he hears the words of this curse, he will bless himself secretly, saying to himself, I'll be all right even though I will stubbornly keep doing whatever I feel like doing, so that I, although dry, sinful, will be added to the watered, that's the righteous. But Adonai will not forgive him. Rather, the anger and jealousy of Adonai will blaze up against that person. Every curse written in this book will be upon him. Adonai will blot out his name from under heaven. Adonai will single him out from all the tribes of Israel to experience what is bad and all the curses of the covenant that's written in this book of the Torah. Now, while we're not going to do this at every opportunity, I want to once again show you an interesting issue with the literal meaning of some of these words. So let's move on now to verse 2. Take a look at verse 2. Most Bible translations begin their heart is divided, now they will bear their guilt. However, Ginsburg points out that the Hebrew word for heart, which is lev, also is infrequently used to designate the branches of a tree or a vine. For instance, in 2 Samuel chapter 18, we read this, starting in verses 14 and 15. Joab, Joab said, I can't waste time arguing with you. He took three darts in his hand and rammed them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive, hanging from the terebinth. Then Yoav's ten young armor-bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him." Okay, now, in this verse about the killing of David's son, Absalom, Absalom was left hanging from a tree. The Hebrew word lev is used twice in this passage. First, it was to speak of the darts thrust into Absalom's chest, to his heart, but second, also used to speak of hanging from the branches of the tree. So Ginsburg's thought is that since the metaphor in current use in Hosea is a what? It's a vine. Then might it not be more than likely that it's not that Israel's heart is divided, but rather a branch of their vine is divided, or better broken up, which is a, just, just another way to translate the Hebrew word halach. This is a sort of dilemma we're dealing with as concerns Hosea chapter 10, but the better news is that we can actually still extract meaning either way. It is that Israel, which was once a unified nation, 
has become divided into two kingdoms, and the one kingdom, Ephraim, Israel, is also being broken up by invaders and in their own internal chaos. And now all of this is happening, they're beginning to realize their guilt. Now the remainder of verse 2 says that he, meaning Jehovah, is going to break down their altars and their standing stones. In other words, the major icons and symbols of Israel's religion, unauthorized symbols and images, the Israel's thought were so good and righteous, will be destructively attacked by God. Now, like every religion that employs icons, no matter what they might be, if they are not biblically ordained, then they are not authorized by God. God hated Israel's adopted icons and symbols. You know, religions just love their icons. These are public displays of their identity with whatever faith movement a person might be part of. The Catholics poke fun at the icons of evangelicals, and of course vice versa. And both make fun of Orthodox Christian icons, and vice versa. On and on it goes within the many branches of Christianity, and folks, this ought to tell us something. These icons serve no useful purpose before the Lord. None. They are simply our guilty pleasures. They make us feel good about our choices and our affiliations. We use them to tell others that we are at least as godly, if not properly more godly, than they are. We use them to tell others we're different from them. And of course, we all have very good reasons to offer as to why our particular favored icons are okay with God, but the other guys aren't. You know, I, I truly can't tell you for sure if there exists any non-biblically designated icons that are actually acceptable by God. And if there are any, which ones they might be. Thus, from the first time I ever taught the Torah, I suggested that we may be playing a dangerous game whenever we choose to create and use icons beyond those that can be found as specifically God-ordained in the Bible, such as the menorah. Religious symbols and icons are problematic things. Although we usually don't see them that way if we happen to personally approve of them, they can cause offense among humans. They can cause God to act severely against the users of some icons and symbols, just as we're witnessing here in Hosea. Because more often than not, they are falsely said to represent God or some attribute or characteristic of Him. My advice? Oh man, tread lightly. Tread lightly. I'll tell you something. You are never going to get into trouble with God for using no religious icons at all. But you might for using any at all. 
Now verse 3 is about the judgment of God against Israel's monarchy. It is that soon they will have no Israelite king. Now probably this oracle was delivered at the time of Israel's final king, Hosea. Now we always need to keep in mind that the book of Hosea is a series of narrative prophecies that were given and written over about a 35-year period of time. So Hosea's several prophecies each tend to line up with historical events that were more imminent than distant. So when we read the words, for now, for now, it is speaking of when Israel has realized their folly and they are collectively in a mode of repentance, but a much too late repentance. So their lament of repentance is, they no longer have a monarch. They have no more Israelite king, for the reason that they did not fear Jehovah. Now I'm not going to go into the actual Hebrew words here, but when we translate, when translated as fear God, those words, fear God, it means to display an obedient loyalty. This obedient loyalty is to manifest itself in behaving according to God's written law code, His moral law code, the law of Moses. It carries a very close sense to that of another Hebrew phrase that is usually translated into English as knowledge of God. Knowledge of God. These two expressions, fear God and knowledge of God, are nearly synonymous in their meaning. There is another thought we also need to explore. Israel was never intended to, to, to depend on the existence of an earthly Israelite king, because to demand a human king was to reject their divine king. God's rightful place is Israel's one and only sovereign. Listen to 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 4 through 9. All the leaders of Israel gathered themselves together and approached Shmuel, that Samuel, in Ramah, and said to him, Look, you've grown old. Your sons are not following your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Shmuel was not pleased to hear them say, Give us a king to judge us, so he prayed to Adonai. And Adonai said to Shmuel, Listen to the people, to everything they say to you, for it is not you that they are rejecting, they're rejecting me. They don't want me to be king over them. They are doing to you exactly what they've been doing to me. From the day I brought them out of Egypt until today, by abandoning me, by serving other gods. So do what they say, but give them a sober warning, telling them what kinds of rulings their king is going to make. See, we must also realize that in a government system whereby the head of a government is a king, the king represents the nation itself. 
When a nation loses their king, the nation loses its, its identity. And its nationhood. So now Israel finds itself with neither heavenly nor earthly king. God has departed from them, and their earthly king has been deposed by a conquering army. Israel is now completely rudderless. Now the final part of the verse that more or less says, what could a king do for us anyway, is rather cryptic. Since what this statement is, is kind of a rhetorical comment that represents the mindset of the people of Israel when this prophesied event of the loss of their own monarchy happens, that I think the idea is that because the enemy is so powerful, Assyria, so powerful, it really doesn't matter who the king of Israel might be. I mean, after all, during these last few years, there has been an incredible turnover of people sitting on the royal throne. And this is because resistance to Assyria, well, it's futile. It's just futile. It's really just a statement of capitulation. Now, verse 4 is speaking of Israel's kings. The they that begins this verse is referring to the series of short-lived Israelite kings of Hosea's era. The kings are supposed to rule over God's people in justice, wisdom, courage, and selflessness. In God's system, the government and the priesthood are supposed to operate closely and with single-mindedness to lead the people in righteousness, but together Israel's priesthood and monarchy were a fraud. Like all politicians, the king talked a lot. Yet what came out of his mouth wasn't always the truth. Instead, says this verse, they make vows falsely, they make covenants they don't even intend to keep. This mostly refers to the treaties that these corrupt and self-serving kings had tried to make with Egypt than Assyria. It's important to remember that among Israel, vows and covenants are supposed to be sealed by invoking Jehovah's name as the overseer and the guarantor of that vow or that covenant. So to use God's name falsely in that regard is to break the commandment to not use God's name in vain. And in fact, that was without doubt the original primary aim of that commandment as opposed to using God's name as a swear word like we hear so much today. Now the continuation of elements of agriculture, or metaphors, of Israel's condition is found in the mention of poisonous weeds that are found in the furrows of the field. Now the furrows are referring to the plowing process that prepares for seed to be planted. I think a good way to understand this is to see it as the opposite of what was supposed to be. And we find the ideal plan for Israel and their government in Psalm 92. In Psalm 92, verses 13 through 16, we read, The righteous will flourish like a palm tree. They will grow like a cedar in the Lebanon. 
planted in the house of Adonai, they will flourish in the courtyards of our God. Even in old age they'll be vigorous, still full of sap, still bearing fruit, proclaiming that Adonai is upright, my rock, in whom there is no wrong. So, what is created is, is this stark contrast between the ideal Israel of Psalm 92, palm trees, cedars flourishing in the land, and the Israel of Hosea's era. In Hosea 10.4, poisonous weeds growing in Israel's fields. These weeds have metaphorically choked out whatever justice and abundance was to be Israel's present and future replaced by injustice, disloyalty to the covenants, societal malaise and immorality, idolatry, and then destruction. Verse 5 revisits the subject of the symbols and icons that Israel adopted and had come to count on for their prosperity and their security. However, the way it is stated in the complete Jewish Bible, which is very much, actually, like most English Bible versions, it's not too good, and it gives us the wrong idea. The sense of it would have been immediately recognizable to the 8th century BC Israelites, but modern English mishandles it. Mayor Gruber does a much better job of translating this verse's original intent and its sense. He says it means, For the calves of Beth Avon, the inhabitants of Samaria fear. Indeed, its people and its priests mourn over it for its glory. That calf will have departed from it. Now remember, to fear in this context means what? Loyal obedience. It did not include the idea of being scared of something. Not that kind of fear. So to best get the sense of it across to 21st century Westerners, I would amend even Gruber's translation to have it say, For the golden calves of Bet-Avon have the loyal obedience of the inhabitants of Ephraim Israel. That's what it's saying. Samaria was the capital city of Ephraim Israel, and just like for all nations, the capital is representative of the nation as a whole because the government leadership rules from there. No doubt, Bet-Avon is a sarcastic insertion of a name for the city of Bethel. Bet-Avon means house of troubles or house of wrongdoing, while Bethel means house of the god El. Now, El was an even more ancient name for Israel's God, and as I'll explain in a future lesson, it could also point to something else. This verse is saying that while Israel claimed to give its loyal obedience to Jehovah, in fact, they were giving it to these calf gods. Now, once again, Israel's idolatry is best revealed by what? Its choice of icons and symbols. The golden calves originally fashioned by King Jeroboam have become the centerpiece of Israel's false hybridized religion. 
How is it that the people of Ephraim Israel could possibly have adopted a golden calf, of all things, as a symbol for Yehovah? Well, first of all, the reality is it was no doubt a bull, not a calf, because a bull was a common symbol used to denote strength and dominance and honor. So clearly the bull was chosen to symbolize the God of Israel because for the people it represented something good and admirable. Why would they think to build this image knowing that the Torah says that no images of Yehovah are to be fashioned? First, because they no longer knew the Torah. And second, because custom and tradition had come to override God's commandments as seems to inevitably happen among God's people, Israelite or Christian. Because the people saw no wrong in it in their own minds, they surely thought it must have been right in God's mind. I mean, you know, every culture had their God images. No harm or evil was meant from it. A culture that had no God images then, or too few of them, was actually seen as poor and primitive. And Israel certainly didn't want to put, be put in that category by its neighbors. Now it seems to me that the use of the term glory in this verse is not being taken either by Gruber or by most English translators as, as what was meant here. See, the glory, well that was a name for a certain manifestation of God just as was wisdom. And we found this and we talked about this in an earlier lesson in Hosea. So the golden calves were inherently symbolizing all the manifestations of God that would include the manifestation of the glory. God is saying here that the loss of His presence to Israel as the glory will be sensed and it will be felt, but the people will visualize it, they will assign it as the loss of the glory that was present within the golden calf images. So the people in the priesthood will mourn over the idolatrous sense of the absence of the glory. Verse 6 gives a little more context to why the false glory that Israel worshipped won't even be there any longer. The calf gods are going to be carried away to the king of Assyria as war booty. Now in the minds of the ancients, defeating a nation and its king automatically carried with it the defeat of that nation's god. So the image of the god of the vanquished nation was presented to the victorious king as a symbol of that defeat. Now again, the Israelites were so certain that some essence of Jehovah was present in those calf god images, that for them God was very tangibly taken away from them. For them, God's departure wasn't as much a matter of Him electing to leave His people as it was an enemy seizing Israel's God, removing Him from the nation He was God over, and thus depriving them of Him in that way.
Now, to highlight this, this verse does not say that it, the calf god, will be carried off to the nation of Assyria, but rather that it will be presented to Asher. Who's Asher? That's the god of the Assyrians. And while the ultimate effect's the same, the understanding is of the defeated god being put to the feet of the victorious god. That's the image Israel had in their heads. Now in the second half of verse 6, Ephraim and Israel are once again used in a synonymous parallelism merely as a rather standard, pardon me, ancient Hebrew literary construction. We're told that Ephraim will be shamed and that Israel will be ashamed of his own counsel. Now this can be a little bit confusing to understand, but here's what I feel pretty certain is the idea. First of all, shamed and ashamed are two different words that, while somewhat related, come with two different meanings. The, the Hebrew word is boshna, and it means shame in the sense of a social status. Israel was, as were most ancient societies, largely based on shame and honor systems. That is, a person lived his life in one of two possible societal statuses, shame or honor. No one wanted to be in a status of shame, so actions, even up to murder, were employed to regain one's lost honor. So this verse says that Ephraim, meaning the northern kingdom, would find themselves living in a societal status of shame. The second Hebrew word is bush, bush, and it means to be ashamed. It is an emotion, it's not a status. Perhaps a better word for modern English speakers is embarrassed or maybe even humiliated. But what about the reason for this embarrassment? That is, it's because of having taken its own counsel. Well, there's really only two possibilities. First, that the king and his court have made a policy decision that was foolish and costly to the nation and has resulted in a disaster. Or, second, that the king made a treaty with Assyria and then he listened to what Assyria wanted them to do. I think it's far more likely that it means the latter than the former. Well, in verse 7, the organic connection between king and capital city and nation are highlighted. Samaria's king is going to vanish, we're told. Vanish. Like, and then most versions complete the sentence with foam on water. However, the Hebrew word ketsef most literally means a splinter or a twig. The Greek translation of the Tanakh chooses a Greek word for this that means foam, and likely because sea foam floats atop sea water and is pushed around by natural forces and then in time it dissipates and disappears. So, splinter or foam, 
the idea is the same. Israel's kings have no power on their own. They just float aimlessly, helplessly upon the waters of history with no control, no direction. And as of now, that history is about to, de to be determined by the leaders of Gentile nations. Well, verse 8 continues with the divine retribution that's coming Israel's way. Israel's countless shrines and altars and high places and standing stones, these are all going to be destroyed. But not only that, the people who used those shrines, the people of, Nor of the Northern Kingdom, will also be destroyed. Now, getting the best sense of this very powerful verse means that perhaps on a thought-for-thought -thought basis, the following might be a little more robust way to understand it. So, looking at that verse, I think this is a better way to think about it. The shrines of Bet Aven, the sin of Israel, will be destroyed. Thorn and thistle will grow upon the altars. They will call to the mountains, bury us to the hills, fall upon us. Now remember, Bet Aven is a nasty sarcasm that says that what was formerly a holy place to Jehovah, Bethel, is better referred to now as Aven, wrongdoing. But to make an even better point, it is that these various shrines represent the sin of Israel. This sin of Israel is those shrines that they have erected there for, and for some kind of a mixed worship of Jehovah along with the various gods of Baal. Now, we don't need to go in depth back to what we covered earlier, but Israel's symbols and icons were Israel's sin, in God's eyes. They placed so much value and trust in those meaningless things, and it was an enormous insult to the Lord. No matter how much Israel claimed that their intent was good, believers, Messianic or Christian, take heed. And just how Badly, do you need those icons and symbols of yours? Are they so necessary in your lives to identify yourself as a believer that you are willing to risk God's anger towards you over them? Israel was willing to take the risk because they refused to hear from their prophets telling them that there was risk. Things didn't turn out so well for them. All these altars and shrines they built over the many hilltops of Israel would come to nothing. They will soon be abandoned, overgrown with thorns and thistles, weeds. Now, this has a built-in contrast that was understood by the ancient is uh, rather a Hebrew reader. It was that it was usual that these altars and shrines would be erected under a small grove of trees, or that the worshiper and establisher of that shrine would plant a tree there. The trees were often used as symbols for Ashtoreth, the goddess of fertility. 
But now these sites of Israel's systematic betrayal of God were just going to become ruins. Interestingly, the final words of Hosea that they were, they would call to the mountains to bury us and to the hills to fall upon us, these were actually quoted by Yeshua on his way to the cross. He was telling people near him that a similar time as to what happened with Ephraim Israel over seven centuries earlier was in their future. In Luke 22, verses 28 through 30, Yeshua turned to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves, for your children. For the time is coming when people will say the childless women are the lucky ones. Those whose wombs have never borne a child, whose breasts have never nursed a baby, then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, to the hills, cover us. Now there's some disagreement among Bible scholars as to whether the person saying this rhetorical lament about asking the, the mountains and the hills to fall upon them is the people of Israel, or it's just kind of figurative of the shrines themselves that we're speaking. I think it's the former. Now when one might say it is a hyperbolic expression of grief and sorrow or terror, like saying, oh, I wish I was never born. It is with the idea that maybe it would be better to die than to fall into enemy hands. Better to die than to be ejected from the land only to have to reside in a foreign place and live out their days as aliens. So death might be for a time preferable to life for the exiled citizens of Israel. And speaking of the end times, we find this same thought. It just expressed differently in the book of Revelation. Revelation 9, 6, in those days people will seek death, but they will not find it. They'll long to die, but death will elude them. Okay. This ends the first section of Hosea chapter 10, so we're going to stop here for today and begin with verse 9 the next time we meet. Okay?